You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kibalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. ...work for a new shear, uh, because, you know, here we are talking about the Rambag, and we're going to spend a lot of time speaking about the Rambag, and he's not the Ramban, he's not the Rambam. Uh, but as we said in the blurb, um, he, there was a, an opinion that was very prevalent um, uh, from probably, you know, from the 18th century, early 18th century on, um, and even perhaps even earlier, that, and maybe this was something that went way back, that the Ramban was actually the great-grandfather of of the Raubag. And um, I found that interesting because, uh, as Ramosh Tzriel points out, he barely mentions the Ramban at all. Uh, and which is one of the prime arguments against that. But I'm going to show you that there was this idea that he was, um, in a way, a biological descendant of, 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 uh, Rao, uh, Rao was a biological descendant of Ramban. And yet, in his days, he was clearly, uh, in line with the Rambam and even further. Um, and I have to tell you that before I, I show you some of the Marmakaimas here, and we're going to start with the Chubas Rivosh, which I think is very instructive about where we're going to go. Um, I think I've been sort of fascinated. Again, it's uh, when I thought about why I wanted to do this, uh, I've been fascinated with the Rambam. I think my whole life. Um, you know, when I was three years old, um, you're going to say three years old. What are you talking about? Um, but when I was three years old, my 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 parents sent me to um, to school and the, the, to a nursery school, and my teacher's name was uh, Mrs. Raubag. And I, I remember distinctly my father um, talking about the name, that the name meant something. And it was always like percolating in my head. And my father used to say, oh, you know, the." Um, and when I got to know, actually, I became friendly with that family, with the Raubag family. And everybody has heard of Triangle K and, of course, uh, uh, J.D. Raubag, who, uh, who started that, that Hashgoha. Uh, his son, Rav Arye, who's a Rav in, uh, was the Rav in Antwerp and Rav in, in Brooklyn. His grandson is a big Tamachokham, is a big shul in Lakewood, Machabre Svarim. Um, even JD himself, Yesef David Raubag, despite what you might want to say about the uh, Hashgochas, uh, and I'm not going to get into that here, he did he did write a Sefer, uh, the Biurim on the Smak, and Imri Yehoisef. And uh, my dad would always say, you know, oh, he's from the Raubag, he's from the Raubag. You know, that Mrs. Raubag is from the Raubag. And I remember that in my head. And I knew that the Raubag meant something to my dad, to my father, who was a European Jew. I remember also when I um, uh, when I came there to throw, uh, I wanted to send my father's forum. And one of the forum that I was able to find uh, at uh, one of these bookstores in, in, in Gaula, in some nook and cranny place, was a bayer of the Raubag. And, and they were not prevalent until the 80s. Uh, Moisir of Cook uh, decided to reprint the Raubag in a five-volume set. Uh, it was very difficult. It was not in the regular Mikroyz Gedoyos. Um, Raubag and Tanach, yes. Uh, those were very common. Uh, and it's not on the full Tanach. But the Raubag and Chumash, the bayer on the Taira, was very, you couldn't find it. So there was a reprint of one of the 1600 or 17 something hundred edition, maybe it was a late, one of the um, 
it might have been actually a reprint of one of the earliest, maybe the 1474 edition, which was one of the first Svarim to Hebrew books to be printed in Italy, uh, 1474, I believe. Uh, the Robag, I found a photocopy of the book. And I remember that I went to, uh, I found the Sefer, I bought it, and then I had to find someone who was traveling back from Eretz Yisrael um, to Memphis, Tennessee, which is where I'm from. That wasn't so easy in those days, so people didn't fly so often. But I happened to be, there happened to be a visitor from Memphis who came, and I remember I, I went all the way across Yerushalayim, and they give it to him, and I said, please take this, and I want to give it to my father as a present, because he used to speak about the Ralbag, and I found the Ralbag's parish. Um, when I came home, and I, my father said to me, well, you know, I was so happy you sent it to me, but I couldn't read it because the letters were so small. It was so difficult for me to to read. And I was I, 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 I was sort of shattered because to me, this was, wasn't this something special? Wasn't this something significant? So um, I, I actually spent a lot of time before I even bought the Sefer studying who the Raubag was and how different he was. And one of the things that I read and and, and, and started me off was what I'm going to show you right now. This it wasn't exactly this because it was an oh, it was an earlier edition of the Encyclopedia uh, Judaica. You might uh, find it as well. Here it is, um, and there it is, Levi van Gershom. And especially when I when I read this in there, and let me see about the part that was really strange to me was this. And you can see here that the Ralbag wrote in his Sefer Muhammad Hashem that God is aware of the fate that awaits all individuals. However, God has therefore accorded man freedom which allows him to liberate himself from the shackles of determinism. An individual who makes use of his freedom is no longer subject to the universal law known by God. He has accomplished an act which is absolutely undetermined and which remains totally unknown to God. God's knowledge does not undergo any modification. It always remains true since the author of the free act is no longer included in the necessary universal proposition thought by God. In other words, God thinks in universals. You as an individual can do an act that God doesn't know about. For Levi, or for Levi, for the Raubag, God's knowledge embraces all the events of this world with the exception of free acts that cannot be predicated by any type of knowledge. Uh, Levi is convinced that he has finally succeeded in reconciling two contradictory fundamental principles of the Bible. Divine omniscience and the freedom of man's will. In other words, there are certain things that God doesn't determine, God doesn't know in a way that God's idea is is limited. When I read this, and I read this in about, um, you know, even before in 1976, I was blown away. And this was this Ralbag that I heard about, that he had written this book that was that was so um, different than almost anything anybody had said, someone who had gone past the Rambam himself um, and the um, in fact, even here where he talks about the fact 
that, uh, and again, you can read it here as well. I can send this to you and put it in the notes. Where he talks about the fact that there's certain sort of matter is just as eternal as God himself. That there's, that there's, a, there's a type of matter, which is the potential of matter to, to be able to accept the forms, the philosophic forms, is actually something that is as eternal as God. Both of these things were things I knew I was only a novice in in, in, in this area. But my first uh, uh, my first week in Eretz Yisrael, this article was written by Bernard Goldstein. Uh, this my first week in Eretz Yisrael, um, I spent Shabbos by uh, Rav, uh, Rav Nachman Bullman. Uh, you might have heard of him. Uh, he was a uh, he was a teacher in Orsameach, but he was much more than just a regular teacher. He was really a, a wonderful thinker. Uh, he translated the Sefer Teidah. Again, he was way beyond a translator. He was really, really an Isha Shkolius, an incredible, incredible uh, mind and and um, a wonderful human being. He was a rov in many cities in, in, in America before he made Aliyah. Uh, so I spent Shabbos by him, and uh, I actually borrowed the Sefer. Uh, uh, Jack, you might be happy to hear this. I borrowed the Das Tunas from him. And um, that he was what he allowed me, by borrowing his Sefer, to really enter into the world of the Ramachal in a way I had never done before. But I asked him when I was 17 years old, I asked him, what's going on with the Ravag? And he said to me, which is sort of the title of today's shir, uh, is that, look, He's out of the Maseva. We have to say that in certain things, he is not part of our Maseva. So I said, so, but he's a Risha, isn't he? He's one of the most important Mepharshim. He has these opinions that are so beyond, he says, these opinions make him beyond the pale. So in other words, and I was left wondering, well, if a person holds these shitas, so don't Aren't they not picayers? You know what I'm saying? Doesn't that really, in certain ways, um, uh, add up to uh, a psul of that whole person? Anyway, this was what Rabbi Bullman seemed to say to me, was that it was possible to exist in a way, <laughs> to be out of bounds, and yet still be important. Um, so, Rabbi Kivalevich, excuse me, and this Milchemet Hashem, uh, that uh, uh, the Ravag wrote this in, is that is that the same thing as his commentary on the Torah? Or, or okay, that so that's a good question. He, these are two separate works, and he started he, he started his his, his uh, Sefer Mohammed Hashem when he was a young man. Uh, it took him a number of years to write, and um, he as he was finishing it, he sort of began his parish on the Torah. So as, as you can see here, it was begun in 1317. Now, the, the, if, if Raubag was born, as you can see, in 1288. So he started the Sefer when he was about 29 mm-hmm. years old. And it took, him, uh, it took him a while to finish. He, this was after he had had the extreme familiarity with uh, the, the um, Aristotelian ideas, the way they were translated by Averroes or Ibn Rashad uh, into Hebrew. Um, and this was after, as you can see, he was writing all these 
uh, commentaries on uh, Aristotle, as you can see. Um, uh, and, and you can see the years that these were written, commentaries on Aristotle and Averroes. So he wrote the Sefer Muhammad Hashem, however, um, these books we do not have in Hebrew. Uh, it seems like they were translated into Latin, and there are there does exist Latin uh, versions of these books. Many of them were uh, made uh, open to members of the church, um, and uh, however, the Parish on Chumash was what he wrote uh, in in in, in Loshna Kodesh. Um, now, it wasn't the first parish that he wrote, as you can see. He started with uh, with Eov, Shir Hashirim. What's interesting about the Ralbag is that he gives us, we know very little about the details of his life, but he tells us how old he was when he was writing his books and when he began them. He tells us when he was born. And he finished this book in 1329. Um, and I assume it was being... Um, circulated, you know, in manuscript, as he was, you know, as, as all books were at the time. So to answer your question, Bob, he refers to the Muhammad many times in his Sefer, in, in, in the bear of, uh, uh, on Chumash. But what I should say is, is that the bear on Chumash is a lot easier to learn than the Sefer Muhammad. First of all, you have two wonderful, clear editions now. Uh, plus, you have the Super Micros Gadolos that the um, University of Tel Aviv put out, uh, which has it in there. Keser, Keter. Uh, again, if you can spend spend your money on it, okay? <laughs> if, if you want to get one edition of Micros Gadolos that has, it, it, it's worth tracking down the Keter editions because they are the most exact. They are they are beautiful. And they have published, I don't have the complete set, um, but there you can find the Raubag as well, along with, of course, many of the other Rishonim. So, but as I was saying before, um, the Raubag's beer on, on, on Chumash was not, although it was published, um, it was at least uh, published a little more often than the Muhammad's. And the Muhammad's is, 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 it was a lot more difficult to read and to learn and understand. The beer on Chumash helps. But sometimes he tells you to look in the Mohamos to understand things a little bit better. So you need to really have both books with you uh, if you really want to proceed in, in the Raubag. Uh, another thing I'm going to tell you is that the Raubag, uh, as you can see, not only you, you can see that he was a mathematician, astronomer, philosopher, and biblical commentator. Um, uh, and we know we talk, the, the, his trigonometry works and other things. Um, are, are are still in use and people understand them. He only lived to be 56 years old and what he was able to write and accomplish is really, really incredible. However, um, the, uh, the what he also accomplished was, and I think we're going to bring this out tonight, is that he felt that he could upgrade what a commentary on Chumash should be. In other words, normally, even the Ramban's commentary on Chumash is very uh, workmanlike. I mean, it's, it's 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 very important. But he starts with the pasuk. He quotes the Rashi, and usually, sometimes he doesn't. He'll quote Eben Ezra. He'll quote the Uncleus. Explain things, um, and you basically have to trudge through. What the what the Raubag does is 
he prefaces every section with these are the hard words you're going to in other words the rabbi expects you to read the parsha first without him and just read it okay i read this section okay what's the rabbi going to do first he's going to tell you the what the words mean the difficult words and how the words come together then he's going to give you an overall, after you've seen the words and you've read the Parsha, he's then going to give you the Biurim. Uh, he's going to give you the, the basic uh, thrust of what this Parsha is about, based on the Biurim of the words. It's just a very good pedagogical device, uh, in my mind, because he's empowering his readers first, giving them a sense of what these words mean, having them begin to understand, then giving you the background, and then what he does is give you what you're supposed to take out of it, the toelis, the toelison of, of that. And, and this, in this way, he was really ahead of his time. Uh, Eben Ezra also, I have to admit, started his parish on, on uh, Beratius that way, uh, with the words and then the inyanim, but he did not finish it. He did not finish. Raubag went all the way through, and plus the Raubag had the Toelison of the Raubag, which I'm going to talk a little bit later uh, in the shir tonight. Uh, about Because as much, Bob, as, as the Mohammed, as you know, uh, and I just want to show you here, as you can see, on account of his boldness and of the suspicion of heresy fastened to him, Levi was subject to virulent attacks. Certain of his doctrines became the aspect of harsh criticism on the part of Chastai Kreskis, uh, Avram Shalom, um, while defending him against Kreskis, censured him for other reasons. Um, Shemtov ibn Shemtov, which is one of the first Kabbalists, one of, an early Mekubal, uh, labeled Mochemes Hashem, Mochemes Al Hashem. We're going to read the Rivosh's Chuvah in a minute. Uh, of course, the Barbanel and others. Uh, criticize him as well. Um, and uh, he mentions the Malbum here. I'm actually going to show you what the Malbum's opinion of uh, the Raubag was a little bit later. So uh, this was a safer that people uh, felt should be out of bounds. And it's Mohammed's Alashem. Okay. M- even more, Bob, and everyone here, than the Murnavuchim of the Rambam. Um, which is, and I'm going to tell you why. Because uh, the the Rambam, in many ways, hides the true depth of what he's after. The Rambam writes, and this has been shown by Leo Strauss, and you don't need to be Leo Strauss to know this. You don't need to be one of the great brains of the 20th century to figure that out you can tell that the Rambam is hinting to things in Mernavuchem and is alluding to things. And you know that there's something here that he's not, it's not on the surface and it's only multiple readings where you really get what he's really after. The Rambam is much more straightforward in his radicalism. And it's for that reason, I think, that while the Mernavuchem lent itself to maybe power of interpretations. In fact, the great Mekubo Rabbi Roma Balafia, who uh, was able to see Mornevuchem as actually a Kabbalistic work, uh, as it was as it started to spread in, 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 throughout other parts of Europe, 
he actually felt that if you read it properly, you could actually read Kabbalah into it and some of the great secrets of mysticism in there. Um, and he wasn't the only one uh, throughout the generations. No one is going to try to make that mistake in Raul Bag. Uh, he clearly is not from the Mekubalim. And I think that's part of the reason why his brazenness and how straightforward he is, it helps you understand what he means, but it also caused him to be shunted aside and to be neglected. The it couldn't have it it, it had to have an effect also on his parish on Chumash as well, um, because and I'm going to show you tonight how that is true. Okay, so that's a, a, a introduction about my fascination with Robag, why I think he's important, um, and um, like I said. Uh, the Chido, Chaimir uh, Sertabar Zulai, and others uh, mentioned that he was a descendant of the Ramban. Um, the truth is, is that the people he hung out with, the people that he was with, were probably were close to the Spaniards. And he did have many relatives in Spain. And it's not totally out of the question that he could have been related. But he was a person who although he never moved much out of his own area of, of Provence, um, was really way beyond almost everybody in his, uh, in his, in his area. I want to start here with uh, just a, a statement from a chuva from the Rivosh. The Rivosh was one of the people that had to leave Spain, as you can see. In 1391, in the wake of severe anti-Jewish riots, Okay, this sounds like, uh, I don't know, Philadelphia, Portland, you know, whatever, uh, Minneapolis. We're not talking about anti-Jewish. <laughs> this was, in a way, the the first uh, expulsion of the Jews. Um, and, um, you know, this this was, there was a third, and again, this was the beginning of, of the first Inquisition and expulsion of the Jews, the Rivosh. Uh, was one of the great Rabbonim, and you can see he studied under the Ran. He fled to Algiers. Now, in Algiers itself, there was a mixture of the North African Sephardim themselves, and also the Spaniards who would come there. Uh, there was always a time on the Rivosh that even though he was the Godel, and definitely the biggest Rav, he never learned Arabic, because he didn't need to speak Arabic in, in Christian Spain. Uh, the Rashbats, or the Tashbates, uh, was a Dayan with him, but they there was a very cold truce between them. Uh, the Rashbats, uh, Shimon ben Semach Duran, uh, was uh, always was constantly undermining the significance of the Rivosh, and eventually, of course, after the Rivosh died, he became the head honcho over there. So the Rivosh uh, writes a tshuva to some communities in uh, in North Africa, I believe, that were going off the grid. Uh, they were not being, they were learning Rambam only. They weren't following accepted Psach Halacha. In many ways, they were rejecting Teresh Peh, and they spent most of their time studying philosophy and, and, and books that were philosophically oriented and allegorical interpretations of the Torah. So, he says, you can't bring a riot from the Rambam. This is Tshuva Memhe in the Rivosh. Okay, 
In other words, the Rambam, before he got involved in studying Aristotelian philosophy through Ibn Rashad and Ibn Sina, okay, these were men, not Al-Ghazali, but these, those three, the ones I mentioned, those were the key uh, Arabic uh, Aristotelians and beyond Aristotelians who, who tried to give a, a philosophical tzura to religion. Aristotle himself, as we've said many times, did not believe in the God the way we do. He didn't believe that there was a revelation. He didn't believe that there was scharva onesh, practice, or mitzvahs, or anything like that. Okay, Aristotle is not. But Aristotle at least thought about things in a very philosophical, not, not philosophically. He thought of things in a, in a, in a, in a, in a way that was analytic, that was piece by piece, that was point by point. He also dealt with all the phenomena of the natural world. And he went from the phenomena of the natural world to things beyond. So Aristotle, uh, Aristotelian thought was crafted and changed and commented on, of course, by the Arabs, who were all very, what we would call from Muslims. Some of them were a little bit more broad-minded. It was from these fountains that the Rambam drank. I do not believe the Rivosh is correct here, that it was only after he learned Kola that he started sampling. In my mind, the Rambam was sampling everything at once. And even when, even as a younger person, he was getting involved in wisdom because as the Rambam clearly states, there's no contradiction to him. But th- this is the Rivosh's little fiction. And the Rivosh's fiction, I think, was necessary in order to stem the tide of philosophic thought. Yeah, you can study philosophy, but if you're the Rambam, because he learned everything, he learned Kolatayrakuma first. Kamoshinirim, he say from Mishnah Torah, Okay, that's true. <laughs> you see, he knew everything, but you don't know necessarily that he wasn't getting involved in philosophy before. Then he, the Rivosh says the following. Okay, the purpose of Merenavuchim was not, as it seems from the Rambam's own words, that this was the pinnacle of his thought, this was his thought taken to the ultimate level, and that he was writing for the Yechidei Mamish Yechidei Skula. This was a book that he needed to write because there was so much apikorsim. There were so many people who, even in the Rambam's time, had gone too far with philosophy. He needed to fight Aristotle. He needed to fight the logical proofs that Aristotle brought because Aristotle believed, of course, in an eternal world. And Aristotle, of course, did not believe there was anything like a God who knew what we were doing. Because there were so many Jews. Again, the Rambam, yes, there were a lot of Karaites there, and, and, and there were some philosophically uh, oriented people. Uh, I'm not sure how many were, were prevalent in Mitzrayim at the time, uh, but that is the Rivosh's idea, uh, that, that, that he needed to write the Sefer for people that were going to go off the Derek. Now, let me, he's, the Rivosh is not 100% wrong. There were definitely the, the, the best and the brightest were being pushed to study the Arabic uh, scholarship of uh, the Aristotelian ideas as how they relate to religion. So the, he's not wrong that there needed to be a book written by one of us. But um, 
you know, and there and there was some confusion, and the Rambam is right, but the Rivosh wants us to believe that the Rambam would never have written this work had he not had to stave off uh, the threat. I don't know if it was a threat or it was the zeitgeist of the time that was expected. In other words, uh, okay. Uh, he says that the Rambam was like Rav Meir. How did Rav Meir learn from Achir? In other words, how did the Rambam learn from the Aristotelians? They were like Kofrit. So how did the Rambam learn from them? Well, the Gemara asked the same thing about Rav Meir. Rav Meir, how did Rav Meir learn from Achir? So, Rav Meir, the Gemara says, Rav Meir found the Pasek. Hat shema divrei chachamim. <laughs> Listen to what Chachamim are saying, okay. Falibcha toshis ledaiti. But have your heart firmly connected to what I, to my das. So Chazal and say, it should be ledaitam. In other words, listen to them and concentrate on what they're telling you. Aha, it must be ledaiti. Now, the simple shot here is, is that even though you have, you're learning Torah, realize that what you're after is the Das Hashem. And uh, again, I had a, um, I, I don't want to, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll throw in a little bald uh, pitch for one of the programs that I did recently in, um, uh, that I did recently in, um, uh, on, on the podcast where we talked about the Satmarov. And my co-host, uh, Rabbi Bechoffer, uh, was very negative about things the Satmarov had written against Rav Kluxatzal. And we talked about whether it's possible to learn from someone who invinces a bad midos in a certain way. And is it possible that someone can still be a godel? Is it possible that someone can still be a person you can learn from? Anyway, you can listen to that episode. I think it might it, it has to do with what we're talking about here. Um, so the simple shot is, I am concentrating not on the person, I'm concentrating on God. Even though I need the Talmud HaChachamim, the Rabbonim, the Poskim, the Rebbes, to give me the word of God. that That's the simple shot in the Pasuk of Hat Ozno Choshma Debrechachamim. But Rivosh learns it to mean, no, they're Rishoyim. Chachamim here don't mean scholars who might not be perfect. Chachamim means the Chachamim of the non-Jewish world. The Chachamim of the philosophical world. Yeah, concentrate. But always have your eye on the prize. Meaning, if you're an Odom Godel, like Rev Meir, you can hear what they have to say. You'll throw away the garbage, the psalis. Like, that he, that he, um, that in other words, uh, he ate the seeds of the pomegranate and the hard shell he threw out. And that is why the Rambam, if you look at Mar Nevukim, that's one of the three psukim that introduces the book. That's why he writes this pasik, Hat Oznacha. He's telling his readers, I know it's strange that here I am, one of the great rabbis, writing a book, and you're going to hear a lot about Aristotle here. This was my modus operandi. That's according to the Rivosh. Um, then the Rivosh criticizes the Rambam, and you'll see now. That even though most of what he's trying to do was okay, but there's things in Marinavuchim which indicate that the Rambam 
went too far and was influenced by the 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 world that he was reading about and it caused him to say things that were wrong in the Torah for example about the the miracle of the benatsarfosis okay what was the miracle of the benatsarfosis well here's the benatsarfosis you can see here i can make it a little larger for you this is elio anovi of course and what does it say that Elio Anovi was living by uh, the Ishat Sarfatis, and um, what happened was was that uh, the, her son got very sick. You killed my son. My son is dead, or my son. Right? Um, Elio says, Let me see your son. And Elio took the boy up to his attic. He lied him down on the bed. He called to God. And he said, How could you do this? And he put his uh, his body over the child, measuring himself to the child three times. And he said, let this child's nefesh come back. The nefesh came back into his body, and he lived. And then Elio took the child that was now breathing and, and alive, brought him down from the attic, and he gave him to his mother. And he said, Re'i, look, your son is alive. Then she said, now I see Ishalihimato. Okay, we know this is one of the most uh, story, one of the most uh, famous stories in Tanakh, Elio Anavi restoring life to a dead child. Excuse me, Rabbi, Rabbi Kivalevich, I, I, Charlene and I were both struck by the same thing. We thought the story was about Alicia. It happened with Alicia too. Uh, and, and but the one we have in the famous Haftorah. Oh, did, did I, did I, uh, oh, okay. Um, right. This this is Eliyahu, right? This is Eliyahu in the, in the Ishat Zerfotis. I think so. Okay, I, I just wanted to make sure we we weren't missing something. So. Uh, am, am I right? Elisha, we had the Is story. There's a similar story with Elisha and the Isha Shunamis. Okay? So, the story, this is part of what people said that Elisha doubled Eliyahu. That Elisha was Eliyahu's student and was Pishnayim. He was able to do even more than Eliyahu Anovi did. But he followed Eliyahu Anovi's path. Okay? So this is Eliyahu Anovi. Okay. So Eliyahu Anovi is the Machaya Mason. Okay. What does the Rambam say that's so bad? Well, take a look. The Rambam in, in Marnavuchim Chelak Aleph um, speaks about the term Misa. So, Misa could mean death, but could also mean being very sick. B'shem ha'chole ha'kovet. For example, v'yomas libo b'kirbo, That means that you got very sick, that you weren't at your best, it's like you felt completely depressed, deflated, and finished. Kovet cholyov. 
לפיכך ביר בבן הצרפתיס, ויכולב חוזק מאוד, עד אשר לא נוסטרו בו נשמה. That's why it has to say that it was, right, that he was so sick till his soul was gone, right? Now, that the soul wasn't there. If it would say Vayomos, then you would say that he was close to dying. Sheyacholi Koved Korav Lomovas. Kamo Novo, Kasher Shomes Advarim. Just like Noval, as we know, got very sick, as you remember. Noval, uh, the husband of, 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 of Abigail, became very sick, uh, but he didn't die. So you might have thought that's what would happen to this child. That's why the Pusik has to repeat and say that it was real death. Okay. Kvar Omar Echad Asfardim, Shenetra Nishimosoi, Achlo Hurgashole Nishimaklau. And some say that. It wasn't that he was dead, but he got something got stuck in him that he couldn't breathe. And this happens People there are many people who faint and uh, again we Charlene, you're a doctor, so you could <laughs> respond on this. Uh uh Dr. Gluck, you can also I, I hope it doesn't happen to you uh in, in your practice. But there's sometimes people can faint and it and, and they can take on the the aspect of death. This part, I'm not sure what the Rambam means. I'm not sure what that means exactly. Um, that's a rechem is a womb. I'm not sure exactly. I might, I might be reading it wrong. And it could be a situation where no one can determine whether he's alive or dead. A, a person can be in such a state for even a day or two. Now, then the Ramam goes on to say that what does death and life mean? That sometimes life means chokhmah, uh, etc. Okay, and and therefore mavis is the is, is the is the opposite of chokhmah. Now, <clears throat> now um, I am not sure which edition of the Mornabuchim the Radak had. Uh, the Rivosh had. But it sounds like what the Rivosh is, is referring to is that the Rambam sneakily <laughs> brought in a, a, a philosophic or scientific parish that ma- made it seem that it wasn't such a great miracle. That it's not like he brought uh, the child back to life, but the child just was having a tr- problem breathing. He appeared as if he was dying. Uh, he appeared like he wouldn't breathe. And whatever, uh, whatever, uh, Thing that was blocking him or not able, he was able to come out of the faint. And that is what um, the Rivosh feels is a little bit of too much a philosophic approach, not being able to accept the fact that, yeah, there was a real miracle. Now, Rav Kapach, uh, who was one of the premier uh, Maimonideans of the 20th century and translated many works of the Rambam from Arabic into modern Hebrew, he says that um, he says Ein mokum narvoni In other words, the Narvoni and others who who are uh, translators of the Rambam and explainers of the Rambam uh, and uh, Al Fakhar to the Radak, they all say that um, 
that uh, the Rambam seems to imply that the, that it's not Kipshuto, that he was not really dead. Um, and therefore, um, don't think that the Rambam is really throwing in and making up some commentary. Um, in other words, basically, the Rambam, in a very tricky way, was inserting his own commentary. He's the Chacham of Sfard. He's the Spaniard, because he was born in Cordoba. So he's the commentary that he's referring to. That seems to be the Rivosh's attitude, that the Rambam allowed philosophy to get the better of him, and to sort of like not agree that Elio could actually bring back a person from the dead. So that's the Rivosh's criticism. Kapach doesn't believe that's what he means. Uh, he says, He says, you think the Rambam cares? If the Rambam believed it, he would say it. The Rambam doesn't care. Um, especially people who are uh, not really human beings in the Rambam's eyes. Kivilevich will answer to Kapach that yes and no. The Rambam doesn't really care but the Rambam still writes in a way that it's not necessarily clear who's talking. <laughs> so he did hide in some ways from the people who didn't really understand what he meant. So it's not so much that he's afraid of people, but he definitely does not necessarily feel that everybody needs to know where he's at and you need to earn your stripes to understand the Rambam. Anyway, that is one taina the Rivosh has. The other taina is Maimed Harsinite. Um, basically, now, what is it that he doesn't like about the Rambam's Maimon Arsini? It could be what he doesn't like about it is that the Rambam holds that nobody heard any real words. In other words, only Moshe Rabbeinu was able to perceive them. Uh, but there weren't actual words that you could hear um, and, and really uh, understand from God. Moshe Rabbeinu understood them. Claudius Stroll sort of got them prophetically, but they didn't actually hear it uh, the way you would hear actual sounds. That might be what he means. Um, and, um, but that is, he, he, he says, I don't, those things are, are, are examples of, I said, I used this phrase last week. I don't mind using it again. A bastardization of the Torah uh, based on the way you understand philosophy and prophecy. Um, maybe he wrote what he wrote about Eliyahu and about Harsinai because you have to know your audience. They're not going to take it unless you walk the walk and talk the talk. He couldn't really constantly push what the Rivosh feels is the Das of Chazal because otherwise the audience would have rejected it. So therefore, the Rambam had to be like a double agent and sort of say a parish that they would agree with. And therefore, the Rambam in Moranabuchim writes things about the Torah that align with philosophy, because this way, at least, we're dragging them away from radicalism. And he didn't write it outright, as you can see. Okay, that's about the Rambam. But our our topic tonight, although we're running out of time here, is the Raubag. But he says, 
But he says, Gam b'malochim sheniru Avram Avinu, Omar shahoye b'maranavua. Okay, we're going to talk about this perhaps a different time, that that malachim don't come, they don't eat, they don't turn into people. That's that's against the, the Rambam's whole understanding of what the purpose of a malach is. Um, a malach, so, but, but the Torah says in this week's parsha that, that the malachim were there, right? And Avram stood over them. Now, Chazal say they weren't really eating, and Avram thought they were eating, but they were there. The Rambam says all of that was a nevuah that that uh, that Avram Avinu had. Uh, the Ramban already uh, disagrees with that, and that's another example of the Rambam going too far. I worked on this a lot, by the way, to see how we can justify this. He was also a great Talmudist. Now you didn't see that in the in, in the in the beginning when I showed you the encyclopedia article from Bernard Goldstein, but there is there does seem to be uh, inferences that he was a posek that people did uh, get his das on a number of chuvas. Uh, some of them had to do with agunas, some of them had to do with other gitin, um, and it does seem that he did weigh in. Uh, he also shows incredible mastery over. Uh, um, Shas and Midrashim, and the, to me, one of the, the greatest parts of the Robag's parish is his parish on the mitzvahs in Parshas Mishpatim and, and, and Sefer Dvarim and Parshas Kiseitze, where he does an incredible job of explaining the Torah and the mitzvahs using so many uh, explanations of Chazal. Uh, so he was definitely, uh, he knew his way around a piece of Gemara. Sort of a backhanded compliment, the parish no. <laughs> uh, I would say it was a, um, you know, uh, it was it was a revolutionary parish. But let's go on. So here you can see he basically followed the Rambam, as I said. The Rambam was his progenitor. As great as he was. The chokmas that he was involved in took him away from truth. He even went farther than the Rambam. He actually overturned the Rambam and was even more radical than the Rambam was. The thing that I mentioned with to Rabbi Bullman, that God doesn't necessarily know what's going to happen. That's even more than the Rambam. The Rambam has a whole confusion of, of verbiage. I don't understand that. Maybe you do. When he, I mean, I understand it, basically. When he talks about that God, from God's perspective, there is no time. So obviously things happen and God knows about them. And we see things based on time, which is a construct that's created. And that way we, we have free will, but God still knows everything because, right, that's what the Rambam says in Hilchus, uh, in Hilchus Tshuva. But the Raubag does not buy that. The Raubag says that God doesn't know certain things. Okay. Um, <laughs> I go back here again to when I was a child. Um, and uh, one of the movies that had one of the uh, greatest impact on me when I was growing up, uh, when I was about... 10, 11 years old, and I ended up reading the book and then reading all the books from this author was uh, 
Burt Lancaster starred in it, Elmer Gantry. You remember Elmer Gantry, the movie, and um, uh, by Sinclair by Sinclair Lewis. And I remember in the um, uh, there's a great scene uh, where Burt Lancaster and um, um, the uh, the reporter Arthur Kennedy who played the reporter, and the reporter was. He was asking him, does he believe that Joshua caused, do you believe that Joshua actually caused the, um, the, you know, the, the, the sun to stand in Gibeon? I remember hearing that because, you know, he was trying to get the reporter to say he didn't really believe in any of the miracles. And I remember the way Burt Lancaster emphasized the miracle of Joshua. Don't you believe that? And, 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 and Arthur Kennedy says, well, if that couldn't happen, right? If that happens, then, Right, I, I, that's a good story. But how can you believe that the that the that the sun stands still? If the sun stands still and the sun doesn't go down, then the Earth's not moving. Then you basically have right. You you have the destruction of the planet. Um, and uh, again, the the the, the Ralbag is in Arthur Kennedy's camp here. <laughs> he's he's in. He says that it didn't happen. He says it didn't happen. The, the, the idea that that the time went backwards, time did not go backwards or stand still. He said that's what Yeshua wanted to happen, but it didn't really happen. So those are dvarim sha'aser l'shomam. You can't even hear them. You just did, <laughs> okay? But it's also for you to hear those things. V'chein basharas hanefesh. When it has to do with how the soul remains, which is one of the topics the Rabag deals with, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. And that's his book. Those things, as and again, I think what the I, I, now I understand why the Rivosh could only say that it's a parish naw. He says there's a lot of things that are very bad news. These two kings, they're Malachim. I'm not saying I'm better than them. The Rambam, the Robag. I'm not trying to say take them out, call, take them down. They're Apikarsim. They said something. They're not Gedolim. They're not Rishonim. But even they erred. How can we do it? How can you say that people now in the beginning of the 15th century should be studying this? We don't know the lights compared to them. Even they were pushed a little bit off the derech. For sure, we who are so weaker intellectually, weaker in our learning, that we should not uh, get involved in that. People who are involved, I've seen it. People that stay in a philosophic uh, system, who, who study it, who are involved, even though they say they're religious Jews, I don't see them davening as much. I don't see them believing that God will answer their prayers as much. They push away the bonds of the Torah mitzvahs. And the reason is, is because they've been affected by what they have learned in those chokhmas. So, this is um, one, uh, 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 the Rivosh, one of the Gedolia Poskim, quoted by the Beis Yosef, 
consistently. This represents, I think, uh, uh, not an uncommon shita about the Ralbag and about many aspects of the Rambam, and is one of the reasons why so many of us are so ill-versed in philosophic thought. We know about the Rambam, and we want to learn it, but the Rivoshes Azoros uh, resonated very strongly. Okay, so I want to. <laughs> I have a couple minutes here. I want to get to the Rambam. Um, I mean, I, I spoke about him in, in many ways, but I didn't do any of him. So let's go to the Rambam. I mentioned last week, if you remember, the uh, commentary. I'll, I'll tell you, I'm going to try to finish Bershuschem. Um, it's going to be around 9, maybe around 9.10. We're going to be finished by 9.10, okay? So, because uh, I do want to get something here. Um, last week, I mentioned the Radak, who was sort of in between a rock and a hard place. He sort of wanted to have his, uh, he, was, he wanted to be philosophical. Uh, at the same time, he wanted to uh, be connected to the simple pshat, um, which m- indicated that man would live forever. Uh, he was, in a way, in between the Ramban and the Rambam's camp, although he lived before the Ramban. Um, the Rabag, if you remember, the Radak said the reason why people needed to live so long was because they needed to write books. And the people who lived long needed to write these books. Maybe it was everybody, maybe it was some of them, he's not sure. But there needed to be some people living long enough to write these books in order for men to have chachma. Because in order to have that chachma, if they didn't live long enough, they wouldn't really understand the world enough. And now people can live 70 years old, but they have the books of the previous generation in order to read and understand and become something. Well, he didn't say to become something, but to, to know chachma from them. Let's look at the Ralbag. The Ralbag. Has a, uh, takes that idea and uh, <laughs> which is sort of like a double and turns it into a home run. He says, <laughs> We need to think about all these long, the, these long levit people. <laughs> it's a falsity to say that man was different now then than he is now. Then we're not the same people. If men live to 900 years and now they only live 70, that's not the same type of human. That's not humans. They aren't, they aren't the same people. And that's a sheker. Did he know about the Ramban? Probably. But he says, it, it, once you throw that factor in, again, he didn't buy any of the, the changes in the atmosphere. What's the reason why they lived so long? Remember what the Radak said, because we needed people to write books. That was a double. Here's the home run. Why are people created? What's the purpose and why people need to be created? That their nefesh should be complete. What is the nefesh when it's created? When you when you, when you start off, asher hu kochi alav. It's kochi. It's potential. Hylik. nefesh hayulis. It has potential to become something. It's nothing yet. 
but you need to allow it to become something. What do you need to allow it to become? You need to think, understand, develop, and realize, understand to the point that it's so clear to you that it means everything. You understand it, you can apply it. Then your seichel goes from seichel ha-hiyuli to seichel ha-nikne. Then you actually own it. You actually have the idea. Now, how did you get to that idea? You got to that idea because God gave us eyes, ears. He gave us a body that feels and understands and is able to perceive things and recognize things, taste things. But then our mind can use what our senses tell us and create an idea behind what it is that we're experiencing. And then it's actually independent of our sensations. And then we actually just don't know the thing in front of us, but we can actually determine, not just statistically, but with a real knowledge that's, that is close to God's knowledge of what the essence of that thing is. Now, in order to do that, we need to have the opportunity to get there. How do we get there to be able to really understand the whole world around us? Vimlo, if we don't have the possibility to do that, in a kvar tiazos achona lobel The whole achona, we have something that, that animals don't have. They don't have that type of seichel that could give them eternal life. We have it. That's the achona within us. It'll go to waste if God doesn't empower us and give us everything we need to be successful in it. It's one of the most difficult things in the world to become a sholei. As he explains in Shirashirim. Shirashirim is the love affair between the seichel that you have, the seichel anikne, and the seichel hapoel, the seichel of God, that is the creator and mover of everything. That's in Shirashirim. And Shirashirim, it's all about how tough it is. And that's why it's so, it isn't about a lover who needs his, his, the Ava of God. It's about being able to actually bend, meld your mind with God by understanding the world around you and understanding philosophical truths, mathematical truths, and beyond. The first people in the world, how? They are babes in the woods. In other words, not like Chazal say that they were magically given the knowledge of everything in the world. They started out knowing nothing. They were like, you know, they were like uh, Gronk, in, 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 right? They were like, they, they, were, <laughs> they were like cavemen, right? In a way. They're the first ones. How do they know about what the world is? Nobody was there to think about things before them. You Nezarim if there's someone before you, you can be helped by what someone before you did. Now, let me explain something. The, the Ralbag was an Aristotelian, but Aristotle really did not believe in the advancement of knowledge. Aristotle believed this is the way it is. And many people in the Middle Ages believed that Aristotle was the be-all, end-all. The Ralbag said Aristotle was great. But mankind is constantly advancing. Mankind is constantly pushing the borders of human thought to understand things more. And it's, it's got to work that way. He says, it, it, he says it, it has to be 
In fact, one of the Raubag's proofs that the world isn't eternal is the paucity of how much we know. The Raubag knew that there was worlds to conquer. There were cosmic planets that still to figure out that we, we're still not getting there. And the proof that the world is, is not eternal is that you can see we're on a path going somewhere. If the world was eternal, we'd all be, we all would know everything about the world already. And we would, we would be masters of science. Now, Aristotle believed that he had done it all. He sat back and said, this is physics and metaphysics. No, I have figured it all out. The robot, which is similar to what uh, Radak said, we got to have their books. I got to, I need someone to figure it out so I can read the guy's book. The Raubag is about being helped by their books. I need, I, but not necessarily a book. I need them around to help me go to the next step of where human beings are going to go. If they only lived 70 years, then of course they would die. Before they could even start to really contemplate the way things work. They might start, but what they would empirically develop would be very little. And it would not really be anything of substance. Why? Because think about it. What do we usually do? Think about man when he started. When man does originally when he starts out, <laughs> the things that we the things that we like to do, yeah, let's binge watch the newest show that we like, right? Let's go to Club Med. Let's eat a bunch of haagen The things that feel good, that's what you want to get involved in. So <laughs> we know that's what the average man would be doing, right? He'll try to find the things that make you feel good. The only way you can be shaken up to not be a hedonist is by somebody guiding you. And if you don't have someone guiding you, how are you going to become this great Avramavino? It's almost impossible. Now, from the fact that these people lived so long, the people who actually outlived everybody and saw all the beautiful women that they were involved with die and saw the ice cream get spoiled and saw whatever else was, those older people could finally figure out that it's not about enjoying your body and enjoying yourself. That's not what man is about. And that can only come with age of realizing how empty and vain life is. A person by himself who's just 50, it's hard for him to figure that out. Many of the things to figure out what they're about, how they work, you first need to feel them and see them and, 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 and have your scientific experiment about them, what they're doing. And then, and then finally, it's in a long process, you're going to be able to determine certain truths. Um, and that's what you see in terms of nature. Sometimes you have to see something last 70, 80, 200 years to figure out the way things work for planets to be in the same spot they were again. That also takes hundreds of years. 
And if people only lived as long as we lived, their experiments would not have been would, would not have been completed. So therefore, since that's the way things are, God's hashkocha in man, which is to make him be successful, that there should be at least some people who live amazingly long lives. So those would begin to start the process of philosophic thought, what is proper. Look what he says here, and I underlined it. Now you have what can other, the next generations, the real generations, the ones that only live 70 years or so, can now build on that and finish the job. Of course, we, we, we hand the baton over to the next generation. Now it turns out that it's not Levatova. Now, and it could only be those people, just like other incredible things. Now the Raubaga told you it's a home run. This is the same thing as the giving of the Torah. The fact that God should talk to human beings, that is a pella. Can't be explained. But it had to happen. It has to happen. Because otherwise we don't know what we need to do. So the same way there's Matan Torah, there's also men in Bereshus that live extremely long lives. Because the same way Torah was given for us, humanity needed to have the wisdoms being put on the table in order by the previous generations. We have the for us, and the reason why all those people lived so long was the for humanity. That's why I think, and again, it's his own original idea, and, and, and think about how deeper this is than the Rambam. The Rambam says, well, it's only these people, maybe they knew something nobody else did. It was some sort of Moface, you bet your life it was a Moface. It was the Moface to to help mankind begin the scientific rising from the primordial cavemen into something. That's what this these long lives were about. Now, now he asks, what about the fact that it says that man knew all the names of the animals? And the Ralbag explains that means he knew exactly the essence of what those animals were. That was a Moshe. The story of Adam calling all the animals their names, that's not literal. That didn't happen. That is an idea of what man can become. Man can look at the physical world, and, and it doesn't really mean that. That's a Moshe. That didn't happen. Adam was not this super gifted Einstein to the 10th power, giant. No, that's not true. He did live a long time. But that was in order to be able to uh, give the world the wisdom, the background of wisdom that it needed to get where it needed to go. Um, Then he says, we'll end with this. It's possible that these long people, God put them in a place, whether it was Gan Eden or wherever it was, that people live longer in those places. 
because the Rabag says there are places that he knows about. I don't know. He didn't really move so much out of Provence, but he knew there were places where people live longer than other places. Now, now of course, they didn't. You, you don't live to be a thousand, but he says because that's the way miracles are. God tries to connect to miracles. Sibos. In other words, he has miracles happen, but he has miracles happen sort of in the way that Teva is working as well. He super galvanizes the Teva, but maybe they were also in a place where many people lived longer anyway. That's the way it was with Kriyas Yamsuf. We know, what did God do by Kriyas Yamsuf? <laughs> by Kriyas Yamsuf, right? He put wind, right? The wind broke the Yam. Right? Why did there have to be wind? He didn't have to have wind. But the wind is there to show you the idea that miracles happen, you uh, galvanizing and powering the teva. But he says, um, but of course this, and, and that is the Rabag's other opinion about how miracles work. The miracles aren't meant to be super duper incredible. You can't understand them. Miracles, yes, they don't have, they don't ascribe. To, uh, to to real laws of physics, but they work within the glove because God wants to keep the the boundaries uh, uh, of physics uh, and science as much as possible. So that is... Uh, Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.